All right, hello everyone. How are we doing today? All right, we have about half the class here, a little more than that. I mentioned people are working on the, the projects still. So <clears throat> I've received a, a number of projects from a lot of people so far. Um, I haven't looked at any of them yet, but are there any questions about the projects? I mean, you still have a few hours to finish them off. You have the rest of the day. So is there any, are there any questions about that? Okay, very good. Um, let's get into into class today. So, what I thought I'd do would be for this class to um, just sort of go over a little bit of history and a little bit of preview going from Shakespeare into Moliere. And there's just a lot of stuff that happens. We're also moving from one country to another. And every time we, every time we move from one country to another, there tends to be a, a tremendous amount of history that goes along with it. And so that is what we're going to, to be doing today. It'll also allow people who may not have um, had the chance to take a look at the play because of the assignment, uh, a little bit of reprieve. We, we might start talking about the play or I'll start talking about the play. Um, but yeah, but so mostly it's going to be this going to be kind of like history and theater from England to the the outbreak of the Civil War. Um, then crossing the channel, we'll talk about the history of French theater from uh, the, the 16th century up until the time of Moliere. Um, OK, any questions about that? All right. Very good. So, as usual, we now do the sharing of the screen nightmare. All right, here we are. Okay, so English and French theater. Okay, so this is the kind of history of what England was going through really towards the end of Shakespeare's life. So we have um, Elizabeth dies in 1603. She is the last of the Tudors. She has quite famously no children. Um, and so she appoints her cousin, James I, to become a king of England. Her cousin is better known as James VI of Scotland. He's, he's the Scottish king. The, the Tudor's roots are Scottish. Uh, so, you know, that... <laughs> hence, hence why a, a Scottish king is coming down to take the throne of England. He becomes crowned James I. Um, so meanwhile, in Europe, there is a huge war breaking out on the mainland, um, a 29-year war known as the Thirty Years' War, which had uh, really was a war of Protestants against um, Catholics, that type of thing. So meanwhile, back in England, so that's kind of the, the political situation there um, in in Europe is there's this this kind of conflict these or series of conflicts maybe it's better thought of between different religious groups um, back in England James dies in 1625 and he leaves the the throne to Charles the first his son who becomes king um, and is not a particularly popular king Charles quickly dissolves Parliament making himself kind of the, the total ruler. Um, this sort of sparks a civil war. Um, and in 1642, with the rise of the civil war between the parliamentarians and, and Charles, the theaters are closed. Meanwhile, on the continent, you have in, um, in 1648, 
the Treaty of Westphalia, which ends the Thirty Years' War, which legalizes uh, 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 Protestant worship on on places like France, in places like France, and that's that. Um, so the Civil War goes back and forth, and eventually Charles is captured, and in 1649 he's executed. His children, which include Charles and James, who will be future kings, who we'll cover in a, in a later episode, a later lecture, they escape to France. And they get put up in France under, I think it was Louis, Louis XIV was, was king at that point um, of France. And, and they're protected there. But Charles himself is executed. And Oliver Crom Cromwell takes over as the protector of the realm. And what has happened now is that England has been, went from a monarchy to a republic. And so there's going to be um, a kind of central rule in parliament. Uh, however, Cromwell is going to be the, the kind of the main guy, and he's going to be in there until 1658. And then his son Richard takes over, and Richard's kind of bumbling and the, the whole thing falls apart after that. Um, but what you have then is Protestant rule in England, and Protestant rule in England features the closing of theater. Um, the Protestants for a long time hated theater. They thought of it as an, an ostentation that, um, you know, that led people away from, from God. William Prynne, was a big writer in the 1630s, and he wrote against the theater. Um, he also wrote against the monarchy, which led him to be imprisoned many times. Um, uh, they, they burnt letters on his head as a punishment. They cut his ears off. Uh, but he was kind of the first major writer to attack the theater on moral grounds. And when we get to, uh, you know, a later lecture, when we get to the, the restoration period of our class, we'll see a, a bit of this kind of anti-theatrical attitude coming back up again in a non-Puritan form. But right now, anti-theater is really Puritan in its tenor. It sees the theater as, as inviting immorality. Um, and, you know, honestly, you're not that wrong. It didn't invite a lot of immorality, but... We're still no fans of them. Boo them. Uh, anyway, going into, on the second column here, the right column, we could see a bit more specific theater history that's going on. So we have Ben Johnson, who writes uh, Vulpon, which is one of his most famous, famous plays amongst a number of them. That was known as a comedy of humors. A comedy of humors. We, we talked about um, the humors were these kind of four aspects of your let's say essence possibly that were that had to be balanced out so it was like phlegm black bile yellow bile and blood i think was the other one i, I could be getting that that last one wrong but there were four of them and they had to be balanced out and once one of them were out of balance it created kind of uh, you know um hectic behavior and so volpon is in the comedy tradition comedy of humors tradition in which the humors get out of balance so um in this case it's like uh people become these different people are trying to inherit money from someone who they believe is dying however the man who is dying is actually playing a trick on them so uh and he, he's trying to make fools out of them all and and does because they're all their their humors are out of sort Right, they're all covetous of this money. Um, Sixteen oh seven, a number, another wonderful play, Francis Beaumont's *The Night of the Burning Pestle*, also comes in, um, as well as the Beaumont's *The Maid's Tragedy*. The uh, the the plays that I'm citing here, Johnson and Beaumont, Fletcher was also part of this. A lot of these are very different from Shakespeare plays. *Night of the Burning Pestle* is sort of like meta theater, even like. Um, there's people who are playing, there's actors who are playing audience members who are commenting on the play and kind of trying to shape it. So it's, it's very, it has like a very postmodern feel. It's very strange, uh, but really funny also. Uh, and, you know, I'm kind of citing those plays there, like Knight and Volpon, um, because there is a kind of a great diversity of plays going on in England at this time that 
Shakespeare isn't writing. These types of plays Shakespeare isn't writing. And these are kind of, like I said, comedy humors, but also things that sort of take place in the city of London itself. Um, uh, Merry Wives of Windsor is the only Shakespeare play that sort of takes place in the city and that's it. It doesn't jump around to other places. A lot of plays were like, took place in London and dealt with everyday people, which Shakespeare, for the most part, wasn't interested in. Um, and you could see that in these plays here. So, in 1613, fire burns down the Globe Theatre. This is believed to be from Cannon Fire, which was a special effect in what I think was Henry VIII, Shakespeare's last history play which, if you've ever seen Henry VIII, is so goddamn boring that you would need to set a fire to make anyone pay attention. It's really, I think, the worst of the history plays. Um, so, other types of plays that came on, John Webster. John Webster is probably the inheritor of, you know, the best playwright after Shakespeare, um, or <laughs> at least I think so. Most people hand that credit off to Johnson. The Duchess of Malfi, I'm highlighting here just because it's, it's one of my favorites, so... I'm talking, I get to be a little selfish, I guess. Um, but it, it is also a representative of kind of the advancement of revenge tragedy, which is also going on, which I'll go into a little more detail here. Um, and the plays of this period, uh, revenge tragedy and other, tend to be a little more bloody. Um, the, the new Scottish king was particularly interested in superstition. He actually, and witchcraft and the black arts, he actually wrote a book on it. Uh, and so you start to see the theater go a little darker. It starts to be interested in um, not just villains, but incredibly diabolical villains. Macbeth, for example, is is a play written during this period, right? During the, the period of James. So, you know, Macbeth, it, it, a play about a Scottish king, and it's also a play about the black arts, right? There's witches who make predictions and whatnot. Um, that, that's in keeping with the temper, timbre of the time. Um, the Duchess of Malfi goes even darker than Macbeth. There's a lot of effort to not only kill people, but make sure they're damned to hell. Um, and so on. Uh, the Changeling is another example of this. Uh, the Changeling, you know, nine years later. But The Changeling is also, a, you know, a very dark play about um, a woman who's sort of conned into or, or sort of blackmailed rather into sleeping with someone a servant who's kind of very lowly and disgusting and criminal but over time she begins to fall in love with him and starts to embrace his criminality um there's also a comedy in it uh, anyway uh, tis pity she's a whore is another one of these dark plays that was written sometime between 29 and 33 about um incestuous siblings who engage in murder blah 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 um then 1634, death of Johnson. And Johnson dies. Johnson leaves behind a authorized folio of all his work. Um, so Johnson is, you know, is a really big deal. And his death sort of puts an end on this. I mean, we could say that uh, that James dying is the real cap. Um, but the, the genre switch from... People like Johnson and Ford and Webster and Beaumont to the plays of what's called the, the Carolingian period, named after Charles, um, that these plays are kind of pre-restoration in the sense that they begin to be more about social manners and things like that. Playwrights like um, uh, Shirley, John Shirley, are, are examples of, of writers like this. And these plays are often not studied there wasn't a lot of them it was a very short period and they're sort of eclipsed by the the early modern period which if you're you know if you're including johnson and that stretches to the 1630s or they're eclipsed by the post-restoration period which starts in in 1660 um but there is a small window of carolingian dramas uh, carolingian comedies that are are interesting um even though they're, they're eclipsed by by other ones okay so here's ben johnson um another kind of vacant stare portrait uh he was a rival of shakespeare um he did write a an epitaph for shakespeare this is the famous line about he knew um little latin and less greek 
So apparently Shakespeare was not as good a student as Johnson. Um, Johnson was coming up at the same time uh, as Shakespeare. He was younger than Shakespeare. He was also incredibly sensitive about his upbringing. He didn't come from a lot of money, and he actually had to, when he initially started, work as a bricklayer. He was an apprentice bricklayer while writing, and he was he was not fond of this. He did not like his lowly origin. Um, but his comedies are, are very different from Shakespeare. His most famous is probably Volpon, like I mentioned before. His other one is Bartholomew or Bartholomew. Both pronunciations are considered accepted. Bartholomew Fair. Um, and this is about, there's a, there was, uh, it stopped, I think, in the 19th century, a major fair in London where people would go to do what people do at fairs, to buy things. You know, it was like a big shopping mall, and there was also entertainment there. But it was also a place where people of different social classes mixed. There was a lot of uh, prostitution going on, um, kind of lawlessness mixed in with commerce. And um, Bartholomew Fair, it doesn't really have a, a plot I could describe, but it's a collection really of these these interactions going on there. And so there's like women mistaken for prostitutes who get arrested and the, the police officer who's trying to regulate everyone, who has kind of like a, who's, who's um, you know, he gets locked in the stock. So you don't want to regulate people. There's a Puritan character and Johnson hates Puritans. Actually, most of these guys hate Puritans. Um, you could see why the Puritans hated theater. Well, the theater hated them back. And the Puritan uh, turns out to be a hypocrite and he gets mocked uh, incessantly. So if you see a Puritan in early modern theater, they're a hypocrite. That's They sort of equate one another. Um, the satire is more biting here. The scenes are realistic. You're typically not going to get magic or people, you know, you're not going to get Rosalind, right? Dressing up like Ganymede and, you know, she puts on a wig and everybody believes it's a boy. Uh, these, these plots are more grounded in realism. Um, and what you're seeing also between like 1550 and... You know, 1610, 1620 is that uh, the the commercial, the international commercial market begins to expand, and so the population of London, oh, I think it doubles in that period. It it grows incredibly large, and so the the population becomes larger, more compact, more diverse, and these city comedies become more and more popular as this going is going on. Because it's, you know, it's reflecting the everyday that these people are encountering, um, you know, and it's, it's seen as a hotbed of crime and corruption, which is, is seen as kind of hilarious. Um, but the, the satires are also very biting. Uh, he has another play called The Staple of News, um, which I think is Ben Johnson. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, if I get that wrong, just just let me know. But it's anyway, it's about um, the the birth of the news industry and they had these you know new, little newsstands and they would sell news and it was about how obsessed people are with the news and they had these these uh this condition called the quidnunc and the quidnunc was um like addicted to news the way the, the character is drawn it's like somebody with a, a physical addiction and they're just standing outside the newsstand begging for money to be able to buy news or at least learn what happened to the dutch overseas or whatever the next news episode is um you know this is a person who would never turn off cnn if if they were alive today um and so that's that's kind of an example of the the sort of satire about the everyday they were talking about very very different from shakespeare we typically don't do them or i don't see them uh taught in classes like this just because they're also very difficult to read they're they are um much more concerned with present-day scandals and one of the reasons probably why shakespeare is is so uh, is so often performed and so often taught is you know the beauty of the language and the beauty of the plays but also they're far more universal right if you're not concerned with the latest political scandal and more concerned with um you know with, with uh, reflecting on love or reflecting on um you know the, the the problems of making a decision well that's something we all encounter and so that seems seems to continue on but if you approach johnson's plays just just be warned uh they they are far more challenging because of the historical context and here's a picture of it yay look at all of them they're in a fair uh okay 
Another form that Johnson wrote in was known as the masks, mask or court mask. Uh, this is originated in, in Italy, like a lot of plays like this. Um, and they were incredibly elaborate plays uh, performed for the court, which often had the nobles and even the royal family performing in them. And so J Johnson was the, the most famous uh, mask writer. I, I don't remember how many he wrote. I want to say he wrote something like 30 of these masks. Uh, th they were very popular. Actually, Milton, John Milton of Paradise Lost fame, wrote one. Um, I, though I don't quite know when it was performed. It's called Comus, if you want to look it up. But these were known for their incredible amount of luxury that went into it. So the set designs were incredibly elaborate. The costuming were very elaborate. They were typically... Uh, allegorical plays so a play about a, like a little message or or something learned in that way there was uh typically a kind of like um a shepherd scene a pastoral scene or a scene with gods in it that type of thing and there was very little plot in some cases no conflict it was just people coming out and reciting poetry um and very often the the the, the poetry was recited around like a satyr interrupt, uh, 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 interrupting something that the gods were doing, and then the gods have to talk about the immorality of the satyr and how what the right moral is. Uh, they're, they're not, I will say, they're not incredibly exciting to read. Um, I think the Milton one is, is an exception. Um, however, they were theater pure. Uh, Johnson teamed up with... Uh, Inigo Jones, who was the most famous stage designer of his day and maybe even of our day. Uh, he was he had an immense reputation and he went to Italy and he studied there. And so he brought back into into the court these elaborate designs. And this is a black and white image of one of Jones's designs here. And you can see he's like putting in three dimensional three-dimensional views into his his set designs um and yeah so uh for example uh, anne of denmark the the queen the the wife of king charles would perform in these plays and she would sing in these plays and they were incredibly luxurious uh so if you want to look into the mask the mask of blackness is probably johnson's most famous um but there's you know there's a ton of them Ah, here we go. Here's here is a design from the Mask of Blackness. Here's another one, Auguries, which you know much later. And you can see these are Jones's also designs. Um, and so yeah, a lot was put into the sumptuousness of it. Um, but anyway, ah, revenge tragedies. We we already talked about this, but let's do some more. So the revenge tragedy was modeled on Seneca, which we remember from week two was the great tragic playwright of the Roman period. Um, now, it isn't that, you know, Elizabeth died, James took the throne, and then people started reading Seneca. The Spanish tragedy was the first real revenge tragedy based upon Seneca. And I want to say that was the late, that, that was late 1580s. I think 1587 was when Kidd put out the Spanish tragedy. So this was, this started in Elizabeth's day. Um, Titus Andronicus, I think, was Shakespeare's first tragedy, period. And it was one of his two revenge tragedies, Hamlet being the other one. Uh, and Titus Andronicus sort of gets at the blood and guts that later Jacobean revenge tragedies would get at. And Titus Andronicus, I don't know how many people have read it. or there's a, I, I won't say it's good, but it's really fun. Julie Taymor film version of it with Anthony Hopkins and uh, a few other people. Um, but at one point, in order to get revenge on a woman who destroyed him titus kills her children bakes them in food and has her eat it so it's that type of play it's 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 you know very uh, uh the gore is is ratcheted up a little bit um thankfully shakespeare kind of stops doing that uh he he's a very young playwright at that point and he, he got a little more sophisticated but you know that's titus for you um the by the era of James, for whatever reason, these plays became really popular, and I can't overemphasize how popular the Spanish tragedy was. 
Um, the, people wanted that play remounted over and over again. It might have been the most popular play of of the early modern period. Um, and, you know, as these plays got more popular, the, the revenge tragedies, they got more bloody. And we've already talked about um, Tis Pity, She's a Whore and the Duchess of Malfi. And, you know, in the, in the, the Duchess of Malfi, the, the plot involves the Duchess of Malfi. And we could see, did we talk about her? Yes, here it is. And uh, here's an image of it. Um, what this play is about is this, this uh, Duke Ferdinand uh, doesn't want his sister, the Duchess, to marry below her station. She marries her steward, which is the person who um, runs an estate and is definitely below her station. Uh, and so what he does, and then over the years, she has a few children with him. So what he does is uh, he, the Ferdinand hires someone to kill her. But before killing her, he captures her. Then he makes models of her dead children so that when she sees the model, she thinks they're her children and she despairs. And once you despair, that means you can't go to heaven because it's sort of like a rejection of, of God's grace. If you're in dis if you're scared, that's one thing, but if you're in despair, if you're so depressed, you think there's no out, that means you're sort of rejecting the out that God's grace can give you and you're damned to hell. And so the play is about this brother so angry at his sister that he doesn't just want to kill her. He wants to be guaranteed that her soul will go to hell after she dies. Um, and while he, while she retains her, her um, certitude, right? She, she doesn't despair. She dies, um, not despair, you know, d dies prepared for grace. Um, she dies in the fourth act. There's a fifth act, at which point the assassin who was assigned to do all this, uh, he turns against Ferdinand and he starts going after Ferdinand. And so the revenge takes on a different tenor because, you know, you have an, uh, the assassin now going after the person who hired him and, and the play takes on a different, a different characteristic. It's a really great play. It's really beautiful, although dark as hell. Um, the, Ferdinand's a great character. Ferdinand's brother, Ferdinand has a brother who, he's working with who's a cardinal who's incredibly interesting um just while ferdinand is all passion he gets very excited and he's very emotional the cardinal is this like cold fish um and and the the contrast between the siblings is really cool all right um and so that is sort of what's happening in england right those are the different genres um the jacobin period comes to an end it it transcends into plays by people like James Shirley and Richard Broom um, and then the theater closes with some exceptions uh, there, there's you know like musical performances are allowed and some people are able to get away with it but basically the theater is closed which brings us to France and the rise of French theater so let's go there so French history let's give a, a survey we've done it for for England um so 1528, uh, Francois I brings the court to Paris, and that begins the cultural hub, and that remains the cultural hub, I want to say, until I think it's 16, the 1680s when Louis XIV brings it to Versailles. Um, but for that period, uh, it, it's, in, it's in Paris. Um, the court, that is, is in Paris. Uh, we also have here the Habsburg Velos Wars. This is when um, Henri II, he declares against war against the Holy Roman Emperor, which is uh, the emperor of the area which today would be called Germany. It's, it's describing the political situation of the German states is a little odd. They have an emperor. However, there's about 500 separate German states, German language states, that each retain loyalty to a prince or a margate. Um, so there isn't exactly any kind of centralized state. This is this is hundreds of years before nationalism. So no one really thinks of themselves as a German. They think of themselves as um, loyal to a particular prince, right? And I think even in France, you would maybe not think of yourself as French necessarily, um, but, you know, as loyal to person X, Y, or Z. Uh, but what happens is, 
there's a dispute between the Holy Roman Empire and um, France over areas of land in Italy. And so Italy is also, Italy doesn't become a nation until the 1860s. So Italy right now is a collection of different countries, empires, whatever, kingdoms, um, as well as the papal states. And there's a dispute over who owns some land in northern France. Um, I believe uh, the French win this. They, they get more territory there. But what happens is, for our purposes, it puts the French in touch with the Italian theater tradition, which, if you remember from an earlier class, is a lot of Commedia dell'arte stuff, right? It's a lot of that kind of wandering comedy. And that begins to get circulated into France after this this war. Um, we start to see uh, the, the war of the religion, war of religion, uh, wars of religion. There's an S missing there. Wars of religion are fought between the Huguenots um, and the Geese, I think you pronounce that. So the Huguenots at this point are the Bourbon princes. Um, they eventually become the the rulers of France, although they, when they become the rulers, they're Catholic. Um, this brings up Catherine de Medici. Uh, there's no S at the end of Medici. That's also a typo. I, I, I put my S's in the wrong spot in this slideshow. But anyway, Catherine de Medici, she was um, Henri II's widow. She was a strong proponent of Catholicism, attempted to assassinate a Huguenot, uh, and then this led to her massacring a bunch of people when that assassination attempt failed. Um, and then later, Henri IV, who I believe is the first Bourbon king, um, and the Bourbons are rulers of, of France until 1791, when they pull out Louis XVI and chop his head off. And then the rulers of France again after the fall of Napoleon until Charles X in 1848. So Henri IV is, is kind of starting this tradition. Um, and he gives the Protestants the right to rule, although that, that rule is, is uh, later revoked. But for the time being, that settles things. Um, and so you have this kind of religious conflict that's going on. And you could imagine plays about religion just like they were in England with the conflict with Henry the Fourth, with the conflict of Henri with Henry the Henry the Eighth, rather, sorry, in England. Here with Henri the Fourth, um, that same conflict is is live. Okay, so now French history, sixteen hundred to seventeen hundred. This here is a picture of Louis the Fourteenth. The the French at this time what was considered sexy was having nice calves. I don't know why. Um, and so a lot of pictures of French nobility, if, if it's a full body portrait, they're going to be kind of showing off their calves. Uh, a lot of times you'd, you'd wear stockings with kind of padding on the calves to, you know, to look better. Um, so you could see this is like, this is, you know, this is a hot portrait right here. This is what he's going for. Um, but anyway, 1610, um, Henri IV, He's assassinated. Another Bourbon king, I, I believe a Catholic, Louis XIII, takes control. Um, and he brings in Cardinal Richelieu as a minister. And this is when you see the birth of the absolute state in France. Uh, Louis XIII and then later Louis XIV start to organize everything around the decision of the king and strictly the king. Before then you had a, a sort of collection of warring nobilities. Um, the, there was these four positions known as the princes of the blood who controlled large bits of area. Uh, Burgundy, for example, is one of them. Um, but now everything begins to be filtered through a single king who's organizing the polity around him. And Louis the Thirteenth begins that process. And Richelieu, who is a... The cardinal, as it says there, but is also an incredibly intelligent um, uh, bureaucratic administer, begins to help him. A cardinal, if you don't know it, is a, is a high-ranking member of the church. That's sort of the uh, uh, a council position. You're in a council that advises the pope as well as elects the, the new pope when the pope dies. Um, the cardinals were incredibly powerful at this time, and, and you know involve themselves in politics. And Richelieu is like the 
the you know the the platonic ideal of a political cardinal right he's you know if you're going to have a, a list of top 10 political cardinals he's probably going to be number one so 43 louis dies and his five-year-old son louis the 14th takes control um you know and led by by richelieu because you know he's five um but eventually you know he comes of age he takes control and he's a very competent leader he becomes known as the sun king um and he he th- sees himself as the state of france right in, in sort of the same way a hundred years earlier in england henry the eighth saw himself as the center of england right this is the era of the absolute monarch um so there's a 30 years war we talked about that that's ending here in 1648 um louis is still a child um and then the franco-spanish war uh again france beats back the habsburgs in spain and you see um bourbon princes uh marrying and taking the monarchy over in spain and so this this one family begins to have control over france begins to have control over spain okay so now we get to the french theater in the 15th century um so in the 1550s these group of men here and this is uh this picture i believe is of pierre de ronsard um what you see is a uh, a group of men called les pieds and they were beginning to form a kind of respect for french verse we see something similar with dante right if anybody knows anything about dante who you know wrote the divine comedy in the 13th century what dante was doing in part with the divine comedy was breaking from the tradition of latin is the best language ever oh my god latin's so great uh, and saying no 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 the vulgar languages which just means non-latin languages are important and dante writes in italian his, his own language um, and saying high art is possible in non-latin languages these three gentlemen and a number of others it wasn't just these three but um their group was attempting to establish the french language as capable of great art as well um they, they studied together in this uh, college that that's mentioned there um and initially they were mainly working with sonnet cycles so just you know like a collection of 30 100 sonnets um you know which are, are 14 line short 14 line poems um, and there's different versions. There's the, the Petrarchan sonnet. There's the Elizabethan sonnet. Uh, there's, there's a few other versions. Those are the two main ones. But whatever, they're, they're 14-line verses, and, and they're putting them into cycles in French. Um, and so they start to establish a kind of French school of how literature is supposed to be written, which initially, starting with the sonnet, but begins to expand to other genres as well. And you start to see their work... Um, begin to be recognized and given official sanction. And it takes a while, uh, but eventually we get here the l'Académie Française, which is still in existence today, established in 1634 by Cardinal Richelieu, um, a a friend of the arts Richelieu was. Uh, And the idea here is that the Académie was going to, and still today, establish standards of taste. Um, and also standards of the language. There's 40 members in the Academy. There's only 40 members in the Academy, and they release um, they release what words are considered actual real words in French. They do this today. It's wild, I think, but also I, I kind of love it. In part because I don't have to deal with it, but yeah, you know, it, it's sort of cool all the same. Um, here's a here's an example of something. This picture is a little blurry. My apologies, but. It's, it's the official French dictionary that they released. And so that's the type of thing they were interested in, is sort of rules for French language and preserving. It's a very conservative institution in the sense of they wanted to preserve the French language from alteration as much as possible, um, which is why reading 17th century French is probably easier for a person who grew up you know reading english like me then it would be for a person growing up reading french to read 17th century english english has changed a lot more and it's arguable that the academy was a big part of 
the the French language altering less than um, than it would have, right? Or altering less than the English language. Um, but anyway, so the Academy, as I said before, was beginning to extend its um, its regulations, and it put out five rules for drama, which are here. Uh, verisimilitude, decorum, no mixing, unities, five acts. So verisimilitude, you want to believable actions. Believable actions means not just no uh, dressing up like the opposite sex and everybody believing it, but also no soliloquies. Because if something's realistic, you don't go out to the audience and give them a speech, right? I don't know. I, I have never... Um, went up to one of my walls in my house and gave a 35-line speech to it. So therefore, soliloquies and set speeches are out. Um, it had to teach and please and uphold French morals without showing violence. This was called decorum, was an appreciation of French morality. Um, you had to have all comedies or all tragedies, no comic tragedies, no class mixing. So it wasn't, you know, you couldn't have um, regal people and lower people. You had to have plays which were about the high class, th though they do have servants, obviously, you know. Um, but, or you had to have plays about kind of peasants doing things. Uh, you couldn't have, for example, a tragedy about peasants. Tragedies were for the upper classes. They were for the aristocracy or like divine figures, um, you know, the divine not in the sense that they could do um, uh, 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 godlike things, but divine in the sense that they were considered uh, members of Greek myth, things like that. They would still be treated realistically, but their, their names are drawn from Greek myth. Um, then the unities from Aristotle, um, you know, which they were, they were stricter about than Aristotle himself, who Aristotle, we remember from, from the poetics, didn't see the unities as rules people had to follow. He was just looking at plays and going, this is kind of what they're doing. And even with unity of action, that wasn't quite one of his. The French sort of stressed that to a greater degree. Um, and also because Seneca was so great, all these plays had to have five acts. And so you get with the misanthrope, a fairly short play, but it's still divided into five acts because, you know, Seneca did it in... Who, who are you to question Seneca? Um, so now we're getting to some of these these writers, Cogne, Pierre Cogne, uh, and he was kind of the rule breaker. So he had a comedy, Millet, uh, and he brought it to Paris with a group of traveling actors. He came from Normandy. Um, his comedy looked to imitate the gentry, so the upper classes. Uh, he, in 1634... Um, he wanted uh, Richelieu, so this is some years before the, the founding of the Academy, uh, Richelieu brought Cogne to work with five other poets to establish a new type of drama. And this is where these rules come from. Cogne is right there at the, the founding of it. Um, but the rules are too strict. Cogne doesn't like them. He breaks with Richelieu, returns to Normandy. Uh, at this time, he writes, around now, he writes Le Cid, his most famous play, and a play we, we almost did for this class. Um, it didn't respect the unities. There's action going on all over the place. There's Moors invading things and love triangles that are involve murder. Um, it didn't respect it, so it, it was not considered um, French or good or whatnot, even though it was loved. Um the concern of the play was what are the what is the moral instructive of the theater and people saw Le Cid as not being morally instructive uh, and so it starts a pamphlet war which pamphlet wars are, are you know are abound uh, anti-theatrical attitudes spawn pamphlet wars in multiple countries it's just a thing and it's basically what it is it's like people writing letters public letters about this problem with theater and then somebody who's defending theater writes a public letter in defense of it okay uh here is another famous playwright uh racine um he initially very early on his first stage were plays were staged by moliere's 
theater company. Um, however, he the second play that Moliere staged, he also, Racine did, sold it to a second company and in order to make more money, which was like kind of screwed Moliere over. And Racine also seduced Moliere's leading lady, the leading lady from the company. And so that those two things caused a, a break between Racine and Moliere. Later, though, he married and became quite conservative. He retired conservative in terms of how he, he lived his life. Um, I don't know what his politics are. But anyway, he married. He retired from public life. He still worked for Louis XIV in a number of public offices. But generally, he did that and stopped writing for a while. Until later, um, Louis's widow sort of encouraged him to return to the theater. And he wrote a few plays in the 1680s and I think one play in the 1690s. Um, before his death, which were these short moral plays that had these kind of moral lessons in them. And Racine is known for being much more of a respecter of the the rules in a way that, that Cornier wasn't. So Racine was much more in. Um, then, of course, Moliere, born Jean-Baptiste Poulquin, I think is how you say that. Um, so his father purchased him a position in the court of Louis Thirteenth back in the day. And it was like the guy in charge of carpets, I think. And this is a major court position. Everybody wanted to be in charge of carpets. Um, Moliere did not want to do that. So he left the court in, in 1643 to become a playwright. In order to spare his family embarrassment, he took on the name Moliere because uh, his father was very embarrassed about him leaving the court. And he founded the Illustre Theatre, which it went bankrupt pretty quickly. Um, he keeps working, though. He keeps writing plays, and he keeps creating these touring companies, which eventually get to Paris in 1658. And in either either 58 or 59, he performs for Louis XIV. Um, Louis loves him, protects him, and, even the, and Moliere had many enemies, but, um, you know, one of which was the church. The church hates the theater still. And... Um, it's still in this time, not not still right today. Um, and they refused to allow players, actors, and Moliere was, was an actor as well as a playwright and a theater manager, to be buried in, Catholic, in a Catholic graveyard. So when he dies, it's Louis XIV who orders his body to be exhumed from the, the non-Catholic graveyard and placed in a Catholic graveyard. So that Louis, even after death, Louis XIV protected Moliere. Um, how he died was in a play called ironically enough, The Imaginary Invalid, um, in which Moliere played the Imaginary Invalid. Um, he, he developed, he had tuberculosis beforehand, but during that play, it got really bad. He collapsed. He refused to go home. He, he demanded that we finish the show. He finished the show while coughing up blood. He went home after the show and died a few hours later. So he, he, you saw him literally die on stage playing an invalid. Uh, that's, that's how devoted he was to his craft. So more things about French theater generally. <clears throat> Hotel de Bourgogne was the first theater in France. It was built in forty-eight for 1548 for mystery plays um, by an organization, the Confrère de la Passion. Um, but mystery plays were made illegal. Remember the, the conflict between the Protestants, the Thirty Years' War, etc. Um, and so... Uh, the Confrie was staging a bunch of plays, kind of comedies and farces, but they found they made more money by renting it out to touring companies, such as Commedia dell'arte companies, which were very popular since the French started being exposed to northern Italians. Um, and here in the French theater, they started to introduce Harlequin and uh, Pantaloon. Um, some interesting stories. I think Pantaloon was there were actors who played this. I don't remember his name who played Pantaloon, but he mocked some members of the court who threw him in jail and in jail he died. So there was still like a lot of, there's still this kind of tension. You could still be in trouble for being a, a theater. Um, here's another competing theater and this is a, a drawing of its inside. Um, uh, theater du Marat. 1634. Um, it was built on a tennis court. So tennis courts were these enormous tennis courts you know they play tennis and this theater was built on there um it was created by the these two actors who wanted to compete with uh, the comedians du roi at the hotel de bourgnon who was the, the comedians were, were an acting troupe that played there this is where the sid premiered um 
It built down. It was reopened with a proscenium arch and extra developments to create special effects. So they had machinery there. Uh, so theater troops, they were made up of 8 to 12 people. Women did perform. Uh, Louis and Richelieu were huge performers. Um, some other types of things. Ballet du court were du corps, rather. Uh, this is dancing at court is, is what that means. Um, the, this was kind of a French version of a mask. It wasn't quite a ballet the way we think of ballet. Um, Jean-Baptiste Lully was the most important figure in music at this time. Uh, he really kind of, I want to say he invented the opera, but he he sponsored it in such a way. And he did invent many aspects of music, including the overture, which was music, this kind of grand music to be played when Louis XIV entered. Um, here's a picture of Ballet du Corps. Uh, it, was, it was a large, it was performed in a large hall, like you could see here, with people on all sides. Um, it was more like a parade, and it was kind of a celebration of France, or the monarch, uh, whoever the monarch was at the time. And it danced, music, poetry, all this stuff. And Lully wrote music for it. Um, and here he is, Jean-Baptiste Lully. Uh, not very liked. Um, here are some of his innovations. I'm, I'm going fast because we're out of time. He invented certain dances, the overture. Um, he has a weird death, which we, we won't go into. Um, and then Moliere's verse. Moliere wrote in what's called the Alexandrine, which is a 12-syllable line divided in two. The lines are written in rhyming couplets. So as you can see with the play, it's A, A, B, B, C, C, etc. Um, each line is divided by a scissora into two six-syllable sections. The major stresses are on the last syllable of each of those six-syllable session sections. And then the secondary stresses are found in any old place. It's less strict than iambic pentameter. All right. And here I just gave an example of this. Um, here's this line, Il penvo est plus dissipé ses ranges, I think is, is how you say that. My French isn't great. Um, and you could see how this line is divided up and where the stresses are. And this is actually a 13-syllable line, so we have an effeminate Alexandrine going on here. Um, but you can see how the stresses are placed out. All right. Um, let me get out of this because we are over time. And um, yes, yeah, so great. So thanks for staying with me for that, that extra minute or two. Uh, whoops, sorry, my notifications are on. Um, but anyway, very good. Any questions about that? Or about anything else? Okay, good. Email me if you have anything to, any questions about the assignment. I'm really eager to read them. And I will see you guys Wednesday to talk more about Moliere. All right. See you guys then. Thank you.